0: Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. I'm really excited to be here today with Karen Duquesne, who's the author of novel The Last Book Party. A former journalist, Karen was also a speechwriter for the United Nations Development Program on Gender Equality. Karen blogged for HuffPost about raising boys and has contributed book reviews to USA Today. A graduate of Brown University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, she currently lives in Pelham, New York with her husband and two sons. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.
1: I'm thrilled. I'm such a big fan Uh, for quite a while. Oh, thank you.
0: So can you please tell listeners what The Last Book Party is about and what inspired you to write it?
1: Okay, so The Last Book Party is a coming of age of a writer. It takes place over the summer of 1987, and it follows a 25-year-old young woman, and she moves from book publishing in New York to Truro on Cape Cod, where she takes a job for a New Yorker writer and works in his house with him and his wife, a poet, and it's about what happens to her over the summer.
0: It was such a vivid portrait. Like, I feel like I actually just spent the weekend on Cape Cod, like, reading this book with you. It was so, like, it was just so everything you painted, such a vivid portrait of it. So, anyway, sorry, go on.
1: So, I wasn't, when I started out, I did not have an idea for this novel in my head. I actually started this. It all grew from a piece of memoir writing. Not that the book is autobiographical, uh, which I can get into later, but I did start out. I had this amazing magical day in my twenties. I had gone to a party like the one that opens the book, this kind of literary crowd, and met a guy, an artist, and soon after we had this amazing day at the beach, the ocean, it was deserted and After a storm and a buoy from a lobster pot, was quite close to shore, and we danced around in waves, and we pulled it in, very much like I described it in the book, and we took the lobsters, being in our 20s, we didn't think that this is poaching, (laughs) (laughs) and we walked carrying the lobsters by the tail back to his house, and we had dinner, and many years later, this guy died. Many years after that, I wanted to just capture this day in writing, because it was just very magical at the time. It became more special later. I mean, I had lost touch with him, and and so I just wanted to write about it. And so I started writing about it in the first person, like it was me. And then I kept going. I was in a writing group, and I just needed to keep going. And so I was intrigued by the idea of writing about myself at that time of life, in mid-20s, working in publishing. And then one day I was writing, and just this character appeared, Jeremy, who walked out of the editor's office, I'm picturing my actual editor that I worked for, and this character appeared completely fictional. And he was kind of prickly and intriguing, and I didn't know why, and I just kept going. And all of a sudden, it was fiction. And I didn't quite even realize I was writing a novel for a while, I just kept going, and it turned into this novel. Wow. And I didn't know what happened to me, like where something just, a character appears. It was kind of cool. I bet. <laughs>
0: I know someone, I once asked somebody how they came up with everything in their books and their novels. And they said, I don't know. It's like asking, how do you come up with your dreams? They just like appear to you. You know, you don't try to have them necessarily. And it sounds like you had that similar type of experience.
1: I did. And I didn't believe it when I heard writers say that earlier. <laughs> So it's like wow, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so tell
0: me about how your experiences in the literary world. Like tell me about your relationship with your editor at the time, how you use that part of your life to place this this book, the opening of the book.
1: So I worked in publishing a very short time. In college, I kept telling myself, I'm not going to be one of those little arts grads who gets out of school and works in publishing. What a cliche. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then I got out of college and I was like, oh God, I need a job. (laughs) working in book publishing, and I got a job at Little Brown as an editorial secretary, which is as low as it sounds. It's it's in the editorial department, but it's lower than the editorial assistant. So you're typing, and you do get to read manuscripts that come in on the slush pile. And I just had fun drawing on that experience. I worked in Little Brown for about a year, and then I worked for a literary agent for a year. And it was fun to write about because Suddenly I'm realizing, like, wow, that was a different era. That was a long time ago, the 1980s. And it's a very different publishing world. So it was fun to revisit it. Although it was very interesting. When this novel was on submission, a lot of editors and their editorial assistants who were young, like the protagonists of the book is, were like, wow, you really got that publishing thing right And I thought, how is that possible? I'm writing about the 1980s, but apparently certain things haven't changed. (laughs) So I I got that sense of being young, bookish, young women, and they're mostly young women that take these jobs in publishing. So it was fun to go back to that.
0: You also, you wrote so beautifully in this book about being an aspiring writer, basically, and being young and wanting to do that as a profession later, You actually, in one of your opening scenes between Eve, the protagonist, and Franny, who is the boy who she has the lobster rendezvous with, right. if you will. So Franny asks her, so are you a writer too? And she replies, I'd like to be, but it's hard until you know what you want to say. Which I thought was really interesting. Do you feel like people can't know what they want to say at that age? Or how do, how did you figure out what you wanted to say?
1: Well, I think that that whole idea that you have to know what you want to write about before you write is partly why I didn't write a novel until my 50s. Because I really thought you had to know, you had to have the idea, you had to have the plot, you had to know what you wanted to say. And I think that came for me, both from a lack of confidence, and also maybe being a journalist for years, where you really do know what you You have to know what you're going to say. You can't write an article and just see what happens. You have to know. (laughs) So writing is about thinking first and then writing. And I think that having the impulse to write can really be enough, and that you can discover what you want to say through the act of writing. And I think I've finally come to realize that that is how I discover what I want to say, and that is how I come up with the better stories is that when I kind of let it go and you're writing in the dark and you don't necessarily know why and you figure it out along the way, which is very scary because you don't have any guarantee you're going to figure it out. But for me, that's how it worked. And I was in a writing group and the leader of the writing group would say time and time again, when I'd say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where this is going. And he would say, just let the story reveal itself trust that you will. And I didn't really believe him, but that is how it happened for me. And I think in the context of Eve's story, you know, I think it's maybe more common for young women to, to just have a harder time claiming their voice and just saying, I don't know why I want to say this, but I do. And I'm going to say it like there's more second guessing yourself and doubting yourself. And and therefore stopping yourself from speaking or writing, you know, from a lack of confidence.
0: You also had Eve say that, I'm trying to find the quote, but you said something like, if the story just pours out of you, then it's much easier and it's worth doing. And Jeremy tells Eve, Jeremy, who is a writer and has written this beautiful novel about a leprosy colony, says, if you need anything to make it as a writer, it's stamina, not genius. No wonder you have trouble finishing stories. It's not magic, you know. And Eve says, isn't it though? My best stories have sort of poured out of me. And Jeremy then advises Eve, you need to stop the magical thinking. You have to push through, especially when it's not easy. Which I loved, because you always hear about stories pouring out of people, and they're just like coming through and coming out. But it's not always like that. It's sometimes, you have to like, Well, tell me more about that.
1: Okay, well, it's interesting because it does seem like two contradictory things. One is I had this experience where this character appeared and when I let go, things just happen, which is great, but that doesn't happen all the time and you don't finish a novel like that. But at at the same time, you have to be willing to let go and let it happen. You also have to be willing to work really hard and not give up when it's not working and go down paths that don't work and regroup and redirect. And I think, you know, I've wanted to write my whole life. And when I think about why did it take me so long? You know, I could have done this earlier. I was writing all the time, but I would always stop because I felt if I were meant to be a writer, it should have been easier. And I finally, when I was approaching 50, got to the point where I felt like, I don't wanna be someone who always wanted to write a novel so and never did. That would be very sad for me. And I thought, I can do this. There's no reason I can't write a novel. I don't know if it's gonna be great, but if I keep chipping away and keep fixing it, I will eventually get one done. And it became a goal that I just needed to do for myself. But I read a lot of things while I was writing to sort of keep my confidence up, to keep working hard. And the more I read, and then I was reading Writers on Writing, and I started to realize that even the very best writers struggle, that it's just hard. It just is. And, you know, in the book, there's this whole sense that Eve gets from her mother, that if you're really a genius, you shouldn't do it unless you're a genius. You're either brilliant or you're not. And if you're not, what's the point? And I think Eve kind of inherited that, you know, in, in sort of grew up with that idea and that stopped her from writing. And I think I also, I think writing's just so hard that you can give yourself a million reasons not to do it. Like, well, I'm not a genius. I'm not going to write anything great. What's the point? You know, you read, I remember reading things all the time. Like if you, you know, writers, many writers have said things like, you know, if you can live without writing, then you're not meant to be a writer. And I just don't think there are any rules like that. I mean, the fact that I couldn't let it go, that no matter what job I was doing, I knew what I really wanted to do was write a novel. Could I have had a happy life without doing it? I could have, but I really wanted to do it. And I had to kind of shore myself up to, to realize that it is hard and there are no guarantees, but you can still do it. And in fact, at one point I was like, well, I can write a bad novel. Like, I can do that. Like, just lower the stakes so it's not so scary. And of course, I didn't want to write a bad novel, but I I just wanted to keep going and not give up because I was tired of myself all my life of sort of fits and starts and not sticking through it. And I think if you're working at it, then you can get those moments where a character appears. So there are moments of magic for sure, for me. And it's not magic, it's subconscious or whatever. But it just has to, you just kind of have to keep chipping away at it. And then, once I went through the first draft and I had a story and I was kind of amazed, oh, my God, I actually have a plot. Something <laughs> happened. Something changed. Then it was fun to ch- to kind of flesh it out and, and add it. So I, I do think you have to let go at some point. But I think ultimately you just have to keep chipping away at it until you're happy with it.
0: You had some interesting Elements to some of the characters that I found a little surprising, but also intriguing. For instance, Jeremy's parents had met at a displaced persons camp in 1945 in Germany, which I thought was such an interesting little tidbit to throw in, especially amidst the Waspy society where you place the characters in this, you know, society and Cave Cod and everything. And I was wondering, like, how did you come? Up with that particular detail. Then I was wondering, well, maybe she was working on a story about displaced persons and then she decided to put it in. I had this whole theory in my head. Anyway, prove me wrong. How did you end up putting that in?
1: I mean, it really grew from, you know, both Eve and Jeremy are Jewish and they're both very taken with this waspy literary world that they want to be a part of, that they somehow they idealize, they think it's somehow the secret to having the life they want. And but they're Jewish in very different ways. You know, Eve's family is completely assimilated, they're not religious, yet all their friends are Jewish. They're that kind of Jewish, you know, like, oh, it's not important to us, but that's kind of their world. And I wanted Jeremy to be from a very different kind of Jewish world, that he was also not comfortable with and trying to run away from. The displaced persons camp thing was more of just a logistical thing when I thought, okay, I wanted them to be Holocaust survivors and not the inspiring kind of Holocaust survivors. But then he came from a family that he did not like, and he kind of wanted to disavow and sort of run away from himself in A similar way that Eve was doing, but yet different. And then the displaced persons camp thing was more of my thinking, okay, well, how old would they be? What would be logical? They can't be too young. They can't be too old. So it was really just more about them having this history that Jeremy didn't want to deal with. And part of his change is his changing attitude towards that.
0: Interesting. I get it. All right. Well, I was a little wrong, but that's okay. (laughs) So do you think you talked a lot about the different societies, even contained on Cape Cod, the sort of old-school Wasp Society and either kind of Jewish society. And later on, Eve says to Jeremy about the poet, the wife of the author who she ends up helping for the summer, you say, is Tilly a little bit anti-Semitic? And Jeremy gives her a knowing look and answers, isn't everyone? So talk to me about about that passage.
1: Again, I didn't want... I mean, Eve was not somebody whose Jewishness was a part of her identity in a strong way, yet she is conscious of these differences, the different worlds in in her family circles and Tilly and Henry's circles, and I didn't want Tilly to be outright anti-Semitic, and there's some little comments that she makes that I don't think are anti-Semitic. Like, there's one point when she says, oh, Eve doesn't eat pork to Henry, and I don't think that's an anti-Semitic remark, but it's a remark that reflects Tilly's lack of familiarity with a lot of Jews. If she assumes that all Jews keep kosher, she clearly hasn't known a lot of Jews in New York. I think most of whom probably don't keep kosher. And that sort of assumption or that she couldn't, you know, every time she talked to Eve, she was aware of her being Jewish. I don't think that's anti-Semitic, but it's it's a difference, you know.
0: When they ran into each other at the restaurant when she was like, oh, you're allowed out on Friday nights?
1: <laughs> right, exactly. So like her lens was seeing it through that way, which Eve wasn't even really aware of. Yet Eve also sort of saw them in this other kind of way. So that was interesting to me. And Jeremy being the child of Holocaust survivors and, you know, having gone to a very not Jewish prep school as a teenager was much more aware of those differences and, and uncomfortable with them in a certain way. So he saw the world in a different way than Eve did. So I think they were both uncomfortable with their background, but in different ways. And it was just interesting to me to explore.
0: A friend of mine recently saw there was a play about Lehman Brothers at the Armory in New York City. And I said, oh, how was the play? And she said, you know what? They had the same thing on their door that you have on your door. (laughs) She's like, can you believe it? I was like, "Um, it's unlike every Jewish person. Okay, anyway, whatever. (laughs) I thought it was so funny. Then she, of course, felt bad, but I was like,
1: no, no, it's fine. That's something that was interesting. So the publishing world that I depicted was – I wasn't making a big point about it being not Jewish, but it was a little brown, you know, kind of a waspy environment. And Eve is passed over for a job by this, you know, handsome blonde middle grad, et cetera. And some editor, older editor, upon reading the manuscripts, one of her comments was she really captured that subtle antisemitism of that era, Ooh. which I wasn't even Ooh. aware of when I was there. And I was like, Oh, really? It was? So I somehow must have like ingested something that I reflected back in this without even realizing. So it was interesting to have that confirmed. (laughs) It was that way. I mean, I was very young at the time. So it's like you pick up on a vibe, but you don't really know. I found it interesting also
0: how you describe Danny, Eve's brother, and you don't give him an official diagnosis, but it seems like he's on the spectrum or asperger or something in that world. Do you think that Eve felt compelled to sort of be a more easy child because her brother was this... He became more difficult to manage, especially as he got older. And in the book, you have her go basically rescue him at one point and clean up his apartment and help him sort of function. And even though he's this genius, right, this mathematical whiz, and the whole family sort of idolizes him in that way, he has trouble managing his life, sort of day to day functioning. So I feel like I, I thought that was just interesting because in, a, in the family dynamic, there's often someone who is harder and then the other person takes up their role of what's left over in a way. So I wanted to hear more about your decision to, to make their family structured like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, that there's often someone who kind of sucks up all the oxygen, who's like, he's creating so much drama that other people can't. And that was interesting to me. But I think even, and I wanted to sort of have him be kind of a manifestation of his, the, the idea that the mother already had about genius that yes. you're either born with yes. it or you're not. And Danny was so brilliant that it's sort of like he's brilliant and Eve's not brilliant. So why should she pursue some artistic thing? She doesn't have it like he does. And I think that was, you know, a very difficult thing for Eve to grow up with. I also think that there's a dynamic that happens in families where, not just emotional issues, but intellectual areas, people stake out areas. And maybe some families, they all compete to do the same thing. But in some families, they do different things. And I have a good relationship with my two older sisters, but I definitely grew up with this sense that well, if my sister did gymnastics, then I would do dance. Or if like, she did that, so I had to do something else. It was a way of not competing, but it was also this sense that if someone staked their claim to a territory, you can't do it. And Eve says at the end of the book, why can't we both be brilliant? Or why can't we both do what we want, even if we're not brilliant? Like, why does one person in the family get to be the difficult one or the accomplished one or the brilliant one. And I think, you know, families, you grow up, that's your whole world. So you give yourself a little role in it. And I think at some point you have to break away from that. Like the whole world doesn't see you as the younger sibling or as the not as smart one. And but if you have sort of taken that idea in with yourself, you have to kind of fight against that. Because I think those family roles that we have are so strong. You carry them with you. But if you really are going to kind of realize your full potential, you have to be who you want to be and not in relation to an older brother or an older sister.
0: I feel like as a as a mom, I'm trying to figure out how not to keep my kids into little roles too, right? Like I don't want one of them to, like if both girls are into gymnastics, why should only one person be allowed to be on a team and all of that? Like I don't want to ever pigeonhole. And people often ask me, as I'm sure it's happened to you or every other mom out there, like, well, which is the easy kid or which is the this? And I'm like, no, 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 no.
1: Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that to them. It's very hard though, because I find that like, you only have experience raising the kids you have. So it's very difficult not to compare them. You know, when you think of like, you can talk about one child for being a certain way, you almost automatically refer to the other because you it's like you only have a couple of examples in your house. And so you're either this way or you're that way. And I think you do have to fight against it. And also the whole idea that if you had two kids doing gymnastics and one is really great and one is not so great but loves it, I think it's a normal thing that you would push and the one who's really good at it more because you, which you shouldn't like, there's the joy of doing something, which is very different than the being good at it. But we're in a very totally. achievement oriented society, you know, yeah. and, and in the book that's Eve, like she's no, no guarantee that she's going to write something good. So nobody's encouraging her to do it, even though it's what she loves. I mean, she lives and breathes books and that's what she wants to do. And that was very much my experience. Like I love reading and writing, but i it was so hard over the years to just embrace it because you feel like there's no guarantee that you're going to write anything good ever. But if you want to do it, you need to do it. And it's difficult. The other day I was getting so stressed
0: out. I'm trying to write a novel myself. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to finish that. And I'm like, no one is sitting there waiting for your novel. Do you know what I mean? Like this is like, I've decided to do this. Like Any stress I put on myself to finish is only because of me. Like, no one's waiting for it. So you have to, like, put the pressure on yourself to get things done without, like, driving yourself crazy, basically.
1: (laughs) You can also drive yourself crazy with the idea that, oh, if I were really serious about this, I would be getting up at 4 a.m. every day and writing and et cetera. And I tortured myself with that for years. Like, oh, I say I want to write, but I'm not doing that, so maybe I don't really. And then I realized that you don't have to do that. Like, I wrote this novel on Tuesdays, the first draft. I literally wrote on Tuesdays. That's it. I was working three days a week. I was in a writing group that met at four o'clock on Tuesdays. Tuesday was the day I saved for writing because Friday I did all the family and kids stuff that. Full time working people do on the weekend. And so Tuesday was my writing day. And I remember I was sitting in this cafe once that I always would go to right near my house. And there was a guy there. He had a big poetry book and he was writing on his laptop. And I imagined he was a poet. And I imagined him asking me if I was a writer. And I imagined myself saying, on Tuesdays, <laughs> you know, like I didn't really think of myself as a writer. I wasn't writing every day. I didn't know where I was going, but I did write the draft of the last book party just by writing on Tuesdays. So this whole idea that you have to be in the 5am club, or you have to write every day, or it's not going to work. I mean, I think you have to do what you can do. And I think there's something nice about nobody waiting for your novel. I think that pressure would be difficult, you know, and then you realize how much you want to do it if you're finding time within everything else you do. How many Tuesdays did it take you? How long did it take? It took a lot of Tuesdays. I mean over a year for sure, probably 2 years of Tuesdays. I mean the whole novel took longer than that. That was just kind of the discovery draft. That was the every week going into the writing group and saying, "I don't know where I'm going with this." And and sort of being encouraged to keep going. Maybe 2 years. And then I set it aside. My dad got sick. And we knew he only had, I mean, he'd been sick for a while, but he got a diagnosis that we knew he only had a few months to live. So I just suddenly had no interest in my novel. And I set it aside. And then I spent the next year after he died writing about him. I wrote a short story based on a story he told me. It was very therapeutic, very cathartic. And then about a year after he died, I picked up this draft that I had written on Tuesdays. And I kind of was like, huh, this really is a novel. And I think I started getting more serious about writing it then. And I could see that it was going to work. Not that I was that confident about it, but it had the shape of a novel and I knew I could finish it. And then I started working more than just Tuesdays on it. And I think the fact that my dad died also made me, it was a little wake up call to me as well. Like you're going to die someday. And if you really want to write a novel get cracking. You need to do more than Tuesdays. And once I had the first draft, it was more fun to work on it because I wasn't working so much in the dark anymore. I had the beginning, the middle and the end. So it was more fun to go back and say like, okay, I need to flesh out this character. I need to slow down this. And it became more fun because I had more sense of like what it was becoming. I could really see the shape of it. So I was procrastinating less because it's hard when you're working in the dark and you don't know what you're doing. It's hard to sit down. Once I had the story, it was more fun. So I just picked up steam. And by the last six months, I was working every minute that I could get to sit down and, and work on it. And speaking
0: of father-child relationships, you have a very interesting dynamic that happens in this book, which is it okay to talk about, do you think? Or you... Yeah, it's yeah. Okay, and I don't want to give anything away, but Eve does have a relationship with both a father and his son, first with the son and then with the father in this book, which was... Oh, scandal. I felt like very scandalous and I couldn't believe it was happening. (laughs) I was actually, I had some house guests over the weekend. I was telling them about your book and how first she had hooked up with the son and then he was, then she hooked up with the father. And they're like, well, who do you think she's going to hook up with by the end of the book? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) So it was pretty funny. Did that come from any sort of autobiographical situation or some sort of friend, quote unquote, that might have had this happen, just out of curiosity? Absolutely not.
1: And it's very funny that you asked that because so few people have said, what the hell? Like, this is weird. (laughs) Like, there's definitely been some reviews on Goodreads where people, and I guess they don't want to do spoilers. I don't think it's a huge spoiler, have said like, I had a real problem with some of Eve's choices. But no, it was not autobiographical at all. And, you know, it really came out of one point when I was working on the novel, I took a very brief writing class at the 92nd Street Y with the writer Matthew Thomas who wrote We Are Not Ourselves who is an amazing teacher and at that point in the draft it wasn't I wasn't sure what was happening yet and the lobster scene happened in the evening with Franny happened but it wasn't even clear if they spent the night together or what happened with them and I remember him saying no they have to they have to if your character doesn't make mistakes who wants to read it like she has to be full in and have things happen. And I really kind of embraced that. And again, I was writing this draft, not quite sure knowing where it was going. So it became very fun to just make Eve do some really stupid things and then write it out and see what happened. And so the relationship with the father, I hadn't actually planned for that to happen either because I didn't have this plot in my head. And that sort of happened and I was like, oh, well that's weird. And I just kind of went with it. And I do think she makes some questionable choices, but this is a 25 year old woman who's supposed to be, she's naive and she's looking for answers in relationships instead of in herself. And she's kind of trying different things to try to figure out how to be the person she wants to be. And it's fun to make people do ridiculous things. I mean, if you have someone who's more like me, who's not quite that dramatic in her living, the book wouldn't be as interesting. So that is not autobiographical.
0: I know. I I was trying to think. I'm like, ooh father-sons that I would ever hook up with. <laughs> think about it. I know, then I was feeling very creepy about it, so I was like, alright, I'm gonna, I mean, obviously not now, I'm very happily married, but <laughs> when I was 25, I mean, I certainly know a lot of 25-year-olds out there making highly questionable decisions, so <laughs> I thought that was pretty juicy, I thought it was pretty awesome. <laughs> you also, you've written all this other stuff, and I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk to you about why you love helicopter parents, which you wrote about in Huff Post, which you ended with this great line, so lift off good helicopter parents, safe flight.
1: (laughs) You know, I think what I wrote in that and I felt when when my kids were young is that it's a struggle not to be a helicopter parent. You know, I mean, you always have these parents who brag about how non-helicoptery they are. I let my kids do this and that. But I think that we all, not all, but I mean there's been so much, I'm the type of person who reads a lot about whatever I'm doing. So when I'm raising kids, I was reading a lot about parenting. And I, you know, I wanted to fight my tendencies to kind of control them too much or to try to fix things for them because I I wanted my kids to grow up and be resilient and be able to deal with their own problems and cope with life. And so whenever I read these stories about crazy things parents could do, you know, there was always some element of it that I could relate to, it was something maybe not completely crazy, but when you read about the really extreme helicopter parents, it's a great reminder of what not to do. You know, you may not see it in yourself, but when you see it in someone else, kicked up a notch, you realize like you really need to not do that to your kid. So it was very (laughs) instructive for me. It was like a fun way to get reminded to be the kind of parent that you think you should be instead of some of your, you know, maybe less admirable (laughs) instincts. So funny. So the last scene of
0: the party, one of the last scenes, not the last scene, one of the last scenes takes place at the literary party of Henry and Tilly's and everybody has to dress up as their favorite literary character. So I started thinking like, who would I dress up as? And I decided if there was a party today, I would probably dress up as Kaya from Where the Crawdads Sing so I could just like wear rags and carry a thing of watercolors (laughs) and be done with it. And everybody would probably
1: know since everyone's reading that book right now. But I was wondering who you would want to be. Who would you dress up as? It's a good question because my major reaction is to tell you the truth, which is that I hate costume parties, very much like Eve, too stressful, hard enough to just be your best self. I agree. Totally agree. And it's too totally revealing. Agree. You know, it's like what you choose to wear is like telling people something about your fantasy vision of yourself. And it's just, yeah, so I've said very often when people are like, we should have a costume party. I'm like, I get to dress as me. I wrote the book, I'm not going. But now I feel like maybe that was also sort of a lack of confidence, you know, a feeling, you know, a lack of confidence and too much self-consciousness. And now I'm thinking, you know, in the book Eve says at one point, and she's trying to decide who to dress as, she's like, Nancy Drew, no, I don't have red hair. I'd more likely best Marvin, the plump, sort of shy friend and that's no fun. And now I think, no, that would actually be kind of fun. You know, I I mean, I would love to dress as Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca, but I could never pull it off. I'm just too, you know, friendly looking. So (laughs) I think I'd have to like play to my natural. Like, I think it'd be fun to do some retro little pumps in a dress and be best Marvin in Nancy Drew. Awesome. Are you working on another book now? I was working on another book this winter. I set it aside for the summer to promote this book, which is a huge relief because it was very hard to have my head in both places. And I am drawing, it's a, book about an older protagonist. It's not a sequel to this one. And it's really about a marriage and ambivalence. But the backdrop is Russia in 2017. And drawing on my experience, I lived in Russia for six years in the 90s. So there's a backstory in the 90s. It's about an American woman, but it's got a whole sort of Russia thing in the year after Trump was elected or Trump's first year in office. And that's all I can say, not because I'm being, you know, cagey about it, but because I haven't written that discovery draft all the way through yet, and I don't know exactly where it's going, but I have some sort of broad ideas. I've been tempted to sort of try to be more efficient and come up with the plot first, but whenever I do that, it's kind of cheesy and it just doesn't work. So I have to go back to my natural game, which is just to write and hope that I figure it out. <laughs> like a gentlewoman in Moscow type of book. <laughs>
0: Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I loved hearing about all of your inspiring stories about writing and Eve's experience and how you wove everything in and writing on Tuesdays. I love that. That's so great. (laughs) So thank thank you so much.
1: I love doing it. And I love listening to the podcast. I think I've learned a lot from it, too, listening to other writers.
0: Oh, good. I love to hear that.
1: (laughs) your novel. Oh, thank you. Yes.
0: <laughs> Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.